The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, we are here in New York City, and our weather is going to be stormy and cloudy and rainy, and it's an interesting time of year as the summer really is starting to kick in here and there's also a convergence of a variety of other events here that have given rise to the theme of this program and one of the themes that we're going to talk about uh, today is archaeology and national identity and the very close connection between the two um, we have had a number of programs that have focused uh, on themes tangential to this primary one, but there are a couple of uh, issues, there are a couple of events actually that are coming together at this particular time of year. One, of course, for those of us here in the United States is the 4th of July, which is our Independence Day and to some degree represents a certain source of pride for many Americans. And... Uh, the holiday represents, of course, the freedom and the independence from British colonial rule. And the second one that just happens to coincide right now is the World Cup. And the World Cup is obviously one of the strongest elements of the assertion of national identities it seems like when world cup time runs around comes around which it does every four years all internecine bickering amongst within nations rather uh, sort of fades and dissipates and in most cases hopefully a friendly atmosphere of competition is generated between nations uh, sometimes these can erupt, obviously, in many situations. They, they tend not to erupt as, as dramatically uh, during the World Cup because it's an, it, it is truly a global event. Uh, they do tend to, I think, erupt 
uh, more on a continental basis when there's European cops, when there's uh, America's cops, and that sort of things. But 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 certainly uh, there's a very very strong reiteration and expression of national identity when these particular. Uh, events, major sporting events occur. We did have a program on the Olympics, which was uh, also focused on the immersion, the emergence of a national identity and the power of sport to essentially underscore the significance of national identity and what it means. And archaeology, of course, has uh, played a major role in this. Um, and if we look at it in historical perspective, well, it, it is very, very clear that um, archaeology, and this is probably an arguable situation, but archaeology is really a product of the developed world the Western world, if you will, the uh, assertion, if you will, of uh, Western power and Western dominance, imperialism, colonialism, whatever you call it, uh, certainly it, 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 it has a lot to do with the uh, expansion of European nations and their increased imprint on the world, uh, beginning certainly uh, as as we uh, tend to think about it in uh, the New World, in the with the, the colonization of the New World by Columbus. Of course, it started before that. Um, the developments in Europe, developments actually outside of Europe as well, as we know certainly from intensive investigations of archaeology in the Americas, excavations in Africa, Asia, all over the world, there were clearly expressions of nationalism uh, that are most manifest in conquering war and the expansion of territorial limits. One of the Western-oriented um, ethos or perspectives that we deal with very often, and the one that has really crept into the mentality of the modern world, is, is the conquest. The conquest and the expansion of imperialism, colonialism, um, and its dominance across the world by European powers. And uh, archaeology has certainly uh, played a major role in that um, because the elite members of the population uh, play, valued artifacts, valued the evidence for early civilizations in a very, very strong way. These people were called antiquarians at the time. And even going back to if we want to talk about origins of civilization and in archaeological circles and, and, and certainly in many historical circles, uh, origins of civilization as, as a period and as a time frame is intimately related to the Bible. It's intimately also related to the third millennium BC. We've had a couple of programs that discuss that. And this really was the time frame that is associated with the emergence of complex societies. Uh, again, we are talking largely about the Western world where it's, it, it presumably started or, or where we have certainly the most compelling evidence for that emergence or genesis. And uh, 
the forging of complex societies, the emergence of commercial trading networks, um, the relationship between uh, central places of governance and a uh, emerging support structure which occurred both in those central places, in its, if you will, suburban areas in the vicinity of Tells and Old Villages, and the hinterlands, which were the non, uh, which were the uh, support networks for uh, agriculture and eventually commerce and trading, and ultimately for the evolution of city-states, polities, if you will, that emerged semi-independently and then ran into unifications and conflicts and initiated the cycles of wars, peace, treaties, more wars, expansionism, and ultimately gave rise to that huge beast that we know as colonialism and imperialism. Now, that's not uh, meant to be my 25-cent version of the history of the Western civilization part one, but certainly in terms of a very sort of broad architecture of how these things happened and how these evolutionary developments occurred. I think that's really where we start off. And um, the British, uh, well, let, let's go back before the British, but, but certainly if we look at the identities of many countries and cultures today, we notice that nation states and, uh, and entities themselves uh, recall their heritage and place that as sort of a cornerstone for their national identities. The, one of the clearest indications of that would certainly be in the case of Israel and uh, the use of the Bible as a baseline for the Old Testament and as a, a basis for establishing the relationship of the Jewish people to their national homeland. Of course, this is argued, uh, and in many cases, in, in compelling fashion by a variety of um, Arabs and other Semitic peoples who say that, of course, they have equal grounding and equal rights to that part of the land, but um, the disputes that have emerged as a result of that are certainly related to archaeology and to the documentation and to the proof that you can make um, for that pr the presence of this ethnic group in a particular uh, part of the landscape. And in the Near East, we certainly know that in the cradles of civilization, Mesopotamia, Egypt, Palestine, uh, well, what we, would, we used to call Syro-Palestine for the variety of kingdoms and polities that emerged in that part of the world. They established their identities, and those identities get carried forward. Now, in that particular part of the world, of course, British expansionism, French expansionism, Dutch and German colonialism put a blot on that, and certainly um, for the longest period of time in the historic periods, uh, those... Uh, the dominance of the British and, and, and Western European empires put their imprint and, and kind of attempted to dwarf, in a sense, the uh, indigenous claims to, uh, to the sanctity of the landscape that uh, the Israelites, the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the Sumerians, etc., had staked to their lands. But uh, this is all a part of using archaeology to establish your roots, if you will, to establish the rights that you have to your land, and it sort of establishes a core of national pride, if you will, 
to justify your existence in a particular piece of land and effectively to retrace it backwards and to establish your roots even in the wake of extensive colonialist and neo-imperialist expansionism. And so those types of, of uh, political movements are part and parcel of archaeology and as we've discussed in several of our programs, uh, a variety of different types of autocratic regimes that have tried to establish their ethnic identities and their ethnic dominance over uh, the invaders or if, as we call it in, in a grander sense, the other lay claim to these lay claim to archaeology as being one of the major justifications they have to assert their uh, national identity. And uh, for better or for worse, and we're treading on very very dicey ground here. Um, these identities get established, and um, the most clear example of what's going on from from uh, from that perspective right now is uh, the resurgence of the Sunni and Shiite conflict in Iraq, which uh, the Americans had certainly thought was uh, presumably under control, has again uh, resurfaced, and it shows you just how deep and long-standing these conflicts can be, and archaeology uh, sort of factors into all of this as uh, various nations go out and, and try to uh, establish clear and compelling material evidence, if you will, for that sort of thing and for their identities. Ethnic groups lay claim um, the Iraq uh, circumstance is certainly very important. I mean, uh, during the uh, early part of the 21st century when the looting was going on in some of the most critical sites, uh, archaeological sites associated with the so-called cradle of civilization, a lot of looting went on for uh, commercial purposes, but also it had an overlay of a veneer of reasserting the role of particular ethnic groups to particular tracts of land, parcels of the landscape, and areas that had been civilized and colonized by particular ethnic groups in advance, certainly, of uh, the incursion, if you will, of the larger Western Europeans, in this case, the English, the French, and later the U.S. So uh, archaeology really does play a very major role here, and in doing so, one of the elements that we study in archaeology is culture history, and cultural history is a two-edged sword because while it enables you to reconstruct the chronologies and to establish the um, identities, if you will, of ethnic groups in particular ports of the terrain, one of the um, not-so-positive elements of that is you run into ethnic conflict and various uh, parties lay stake two particular types of areas. The archaeology itself uh, is not necessarily uniform. It doesn't mean the same to different ethnic groups which have different perspectives on their own histories and they will point to, um, in the Middle East certainly to the Quran, to the Bible, to the Old Testament, and, and in Western Europe and in uh, most parts of Europe certainly the New Testament comes into play as uh, various ethnic groups lay claim to their turf. And um, these types of claims are, again, as I said, sources of pride and sources of conflict. And I will try to get into this uh, topic a little bit more vis-a-vis -vis archaeology after uh, we return from these messages. Stay tuned. 
Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Join Dr. Linda Iniguez every week for the Shrink Wrap Forum. This show discusses topics that you wouldn't normally hear in today's media. In the forum, virtually no topic is off limits. We invite you to join us and participate or dive into the stream where we value independent thought, talk to those people that are making a difference, and explore ideas considered outside the box. The Shrink Wrap Forum can be heard live every Monday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back, and we are discussing nationalism, archaeology, and identity. Uh, we brought the topic up on today's episode because we're looking at two converging elements of uh, nationalistic pride, if you will. Um, first, on the national scale, the 4th of July holiday in the United States, which represents the independence of the fledgling U.S. democracy from a British colonial rule. And the second one, of course, is a broader scale international development, and that, of course, is the World Cup, which brings together uh, peoples from all over the world in largely pleasant uh, competitive pers- uh, frameworks. Uh, they have been remarkably um, well run, I would say, in the long term because uh, national um, conflicts do not seem to surface on the World Cup stage as they do in most of the regional or even uh, interregional uh, soccer venues that occur, uh, especially in places like in, in, in Europe and in Latin America and parts of Africa as well. Um, they, they, they seem to be reasonably well contained, but nevertheless, there's a very strong source of pride for um, each particular uh, dominant culture, if you will, uh, for the uh, countries that are working, uh, that are competing in the World Cup. I think one of the uh, elements uh, in which archaeology and can, can sort of be brought into the picture, and one of the things we really do have to look at, is the fact that uh, the imprint of Western civilization, and especially Western European culture, across the world is, is extremely dominant, and is, is a very, very strong factor 
in affecting um, what what national pride is all about. And traditionally, if you look at it, and that's changing right now, and I think in in a positive way, um, it is the dominant culture that basically has set the agenda for what for what we take pride in. So that, for example, um, in the United States, um, it it is the largely the European culture that has been taught uh, to. Uh, to the populations, to the school children, we're talking about the educational system right now, that it's the dominance of the prevalent culture that uh, is, is, is basically instilled as teaching you effectively one past for your country and that it essentially represents the country or the peoples that have conquered that land that land and have uh, settled it and we essentially are told that these are uh, this is our historical roots um, we look at for in the United States for example vestiges of the uh, US the independence movement in the 18th century and and a little bit before that to give us a sense of our national pride. Uh, by the same time, uh, ethnic identities, minority identities are sort of glossed over. And I know that certainly in, in when I was going to school, uh, Columbus Day was revered as a very, very major holiday because the dominant culture, the European white culture, uh, was celebrated as having colonized this land and the Americas in, in many great in, in, in a broader sense. And uh, we celebrated that. And as we did so, and many of us were, were brought up in that time frame, and it, it extended, I think, all the way into the 60s and 70s, to believe that this was a wonderful thing, that colonization of the, of the Americas was a very positive development, that, uh, for example, the, the, the concept that Columbus, quote-unquote, discovered America is something that became almost a reflexive response when you talked to uh, students and, and kids and even kids from uh, minority cultures uh, in the United States and Canada and, and other parts of, of the New World, including Mexico and, and South America. It was the Spanish who conquered those, le- those areas and these were the heroes and these were the people who brought quote-unquote culture to, uh, to what would, would be called a primitive part of the world and those concepts are still uh, dying hard, but there is a least right now an understanding that uh, as much as this could have been considered a positive development, let us embrace Western culture, it also had tremendous amount of negativity and a tremendous amount of negative impact on the indigenous people who had actually colonized this part of the world uh, thousands of years ago, and certainly uh, up to about 15,000 years ago when indigenous populations um, effectively made their way into the new world. And survived, and survived in a very, very uh, systematic and positive way with their own cultural traditions uh, developing in, from hunter-gatherers into very complex societies that were certainly not untinged by warfare and colonialist expansion on their own right, but nevertheless... They were considered by by the Western conquering, so-called conquering heroes that we celebrated when when we were educated. They were considered primitive peoples, and as we discussed in a previous episode, the pseudo archaeology of today uh, still marvels at the fact that 
the pyramids of the Midwest in places like Cahokia or the monumental architecture of Mesoamerica and the Mayan uh, civilizations and farther to the south, the Inca developments in in Peru and in Bolivia, those were clearly could not have been the product of indigenous populations, but uh, in many cases, as, as, and again, this was a fresh segment that we had discussed uh, a couple of weeks ago, that these must have been evidence of white people tran- being transported across oceans to colonize these folks, or even aliens coming from different planets to develop this magnificent art, architecture, culture, and um, in fa- and agriculture and economic developments, that this could only have been an anomalous situation that was perp- that was brought on by white people or alien people from other areas and other planets even uh, to to uh, raise the level of, of the primitive Native Americans and to colonize them. Of course, this turns out to be a, a bunch of hogwash, as we know, and uh, technology and uh, architecture and uh, very sophisticated political organizations were the product of indigenous peoples and their minds and certainly their engineering feats uh, were stupendous and amazing and they resulted in the emergence of very complex cultural landscapes in the Americas as they did in all parts of Asia, uh, other parts of Europe, in Africa and we're only starting to learn this as archaeology becomes increasingly sophisticated. And one of the interesting elements of that is that the uh, techniques that we now have in archaeology allow us to look at some of the more complex landscapes that are not given very much to preserving uh, cultural artifacts um, in the past because those are very perishable in such areas as rainforests where many indigenous people left. But now we have the capability of looking at those landscapes and those perishable organic uh, artifacts and evidence of of, uh, ancient architecture and construction, for example, irrigation canals and systematic diversion channels that were used in a variety of different types of agricultural economies, we can now pick these up. And we see that the level of sophistication of indigenous populations all over the world was basically, um, if not uh, a synchronous development, they certainly developed independently and Uh, in conjunction with developmental histories associated with individual groups and ethnic identities. And the archaeology now uh, at Long Glass is starting to get to that level of sophistication where we can pick up these developments and reconfigure our ideas on how culture emerged because we are more sophisticated methodologically as archaeologists. We can decipher complex societies from more uh, more subtle indications on the landscape because of, of high-resolution archaeological techniques, remote sensing, satellite imagery, LIDAR, um, GIS mapping, geographic information systems mapping, and we're able to look at exactly how sophisticated, for example, road networks were um, in in the Americas uh, amongst the in, amongst the Incas, and how sophisticated the mobilization of water was amongst the Mayans, 
and uh, how artfully and how well-structured the economies of Mesoamerica, within Mesoamerica and amongst the Aztec populations, how well-designed these were until they were uh, ultimately short-circuited by the Spanish invasions in the 16th century and subsequent. And of course, so within that same framework, these uh, complex societies that evolved in many parts of the world also had their traditions of warfare. warfare. Let's, let's Let's also not uh, dismiss the uh, idea that warfare is purely a Western European construct. It is not. We have uh, very compelling evidence across the New World that uh, the same the same types of internecine conflicts that characterize uh, characterize colonialist expansion also occurred on a very broad scale um, amongst indigenous populations as well. Uh, for a long time, that concept seemed to be it seemed to not have taken hold in the New World. It really wasn't recognized. But again, very sophisticated archaeological techniques are telling us that warfare is a long-standing operation and it's not confined to western civilizations it's not confined to european powers it may have reached a scale of incredible uh, sophistication if you will and barbarism or if you want to call it that uh, as well uh, within the western cultures but certainly these types of aspects of the human condition were in operation in prehistoric times and uh, so forth, so we can't say that. But I think one of, one of the main issues here and, and one of the main issues that we have to deal with as archaeologists is that the entire idea of prehistory was really something that had been glossed over for a very long period of time. And as a prehistorian and somebody who studies ancient cultures uh, going back to uh, hominid origins, human origins, um, we, ha- we are, are finally starting to get to the point where I hope certainly um, broader uh, broader elements of the world uh, and the, and uh, sophisticated societies are starting to understand that the world really is not fifty seven hundred years old or fifty eight hundred years old that uh, the human condition evolved as a morphological development uh, that re- extends from our evolution as a species all the way into uh, various cultural stages of development and that we really need to understand this if we're, we're trying to figure out who we are and how we're going to eventually be able to cope with the challenges of survival that are being brought about in the post-industrial age. I hope that's working. I think by and large it is, although there are pockets of resistance, certainly in, uh, in religious communities, and um, those are the types of issues that we do have to deal with. But I think by and large, the emergence of prehistory as a critical avenue of study in archaeology is advancing, I think, the more uh, scientific baseline of understanding how humans evolved, how their institutions evolved, and how we adapt to our changing environments, which of course is becoming an increasingly more uh, critical and immediate concern in this age of global warming and climate change. Um, We have to also stop thinking in terms of things like uncivilized society. Civilization, of course, is a Western European construct in and of itself. And we have to talk about developmental situations and developmental contexts among indigenous populations that were every every bit as important and sophisticated um, amongst uh, 
all peoples, if uh, they, e- even if they weren't synchronous, but they do rep- represent, as we knew as archaeologists all along, an adaptation to the systematics of landscapes, change, ecological changes, and uh, a variety of environmental transitions over the course of time. And, and we'll be back and talk about this uh, after these words. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bosser, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back, and we've been talking about national identity and archaeology and how uh, archaeology frames, and to some degree, the identities of uh, people in uh, the various countries in, in which they live. I think one of the uh, points that I tried to touch on in the previous segment was the fact that up until relatively recently, um, it was the dominant society, uh, which essentially, if you really look at the basic elements of it, represents the conquering society, is the one whose identity is sort of uh, disseminated across an individual country so that if for example, if we're looking at the United States, then uh, certainly up until the 50s and 60s, uh, white European British societies, um, uh, British uh, Euro-American, Anglo-Saxon, if you will, identities sort of rule the day. Um, Americans, quote-unquote, uh, when during the American century, which which most people call the 20th century, were considered basically run by white people, um, European people. 
from a variety of different nations and this sort of to the detriment of people of color and uh, Native Americans who were conveniently sort of pushed into the background when identifying the the identif- the identity, if you will, of what the United States was. The same thing is true in uh, Latin America where the Spanish tinge, if you will, was the dominant one and uh, for many, many decades and uh, century, for several centuries, certainly the, uh, the conquistadors were uh, considered the purveyors of all that is good in the emerging Latin American nations. And across Europe, uh, similar types of uh, ethnic identities were brought to the forefront. Uh, certainly, if you look at the Russian Empire, it was, in fact, the European Russians um, that essentially masked the, identify, the identities of uh, the Asiatic populations in the Central Asian republics and farther to the east, and uh, on and on and on. Uh, in Africa, um, again, uh, it was a starker, even a, a much more stark contrast because the conquering uh, populations, the British, the Dutch, the Germans, and the French, and the Portuguese certainly um, were a much smaller portion of the population uh, in sub-Saharan Africa than they were in, in, in the New World. And yet, uh, history had been taught by those people and essentially casting uh, Christianity in, in the sense that it was the sort of savior religion, if you will, for, uh, for the African people. And of course, as time wore on, and, and I guess this is development over the past 50 years, we're starting to see that there's a lot of pride in the indigenous a component of nations so that, for example, in, in Mexico, the Aztec symbols are now being revived and, and are being associated with, with the Mexican heritage and Mexican culture. And certainly in terms of the demographics, the uh, mestizo populations that are dominated by uh, indigenous uh, components of, of, of most people's heritage are coming to the fore and they're taking pride in uh, that element of, of their heritage more and more. And that's happening in many parts of the world as well it should. It seems like just a natural evolution of, of events as these countries have become independent and sort of cast off the, um, the role of the conquering uh, Euro- European powers. And that has now uh, essentially become a trend in many parts of the world to go back to the original association of uh, the people who basically formed their own cultures and societies. And that archaeology has a tremendous amount to do with that because historic architecture, historic monuments, and and those amazing um, elements of and artifacts and, and, and evidence of, of complex organization of societies was in fact a product of indigenous populations essentially looking at at uh, the social fabric and, and, and the socio-political baselines for how societies can evolve and be productive through time, organizing means of production and distribution in a way that is suitable for that landscape for those people. And that collective mentality seems to have spread all over the world and has essentially asserted itself in the identities of of emerging nations, I, I call them emerging, na- emerging nations, but these are the independence movements of the 60s and subsequent, and you're getting a, um, 
a source of pride in that type of development and in those uh, and in those um, monuments that archaeologists have basically played a major role in unearthing and reformulating and reconstructing and developing uh, timelines and developmental histories for societies that had been heretofore unknown and were largely dismissed by the dominant white culture as being associated with primitive people. Well, it turns out that exactly the opposite was the case, that uh, prehistoric peoples um, pre uh, were were responsible for incredible achievements in all elements of human development, and uh, so that's now becoming the uh, the dominant source of identity for many nations. As uh, hopefully the period of colonialism is starting to dissipate, and uh, the way the world the the global world is emerging as uh, a, a critical reality for which we really there's no precedent to this point, and so the identities again continue to change and become more global in nature. Nationalism's not going anywhere, that's for sure, but uh, we are certainly becoming much more accommodating, and we're starting to learn how important and what the differences are amongst various peoples and amongst various ethnic groups and how important that is for establishing the tone and uh, certainly the pride of people in their own countries and giving them uh, sort of a passport into into the global world and the global marketplace and hopefully that is all for the better. Now that says uh, one of the jo- one of the jobs that we have as archaeologists is to popularize that and to uh, underscore it and to understand. I hope that science is a way of providing uh, that wealth of knowledge that establish connect- establishes be- connections between uh, peoples, um, establishes a more cooperative, hopefully, understanding that um, that. Uh, people of one culture really do have a lot in common with people of other cultures in that their ability to survive um, is certainly contingent upon their understanding that cooperation is certainly the linchpin of survival and the linchpin of uh, continuity. And I would would suggest that um, interactions on all levels between ethnic groups and ethnic people can only be a very positive development as uh, as the global world and the global marketplace sort of exerts its dominance across the world. I don't, again, there are political ramifications to all these observations, but I think uh, the global universe is, is what we're talking about. It's here to stay, and that we have to understand that cooperation is housed in shared values, and shared values are a function of shared histories. And those histories, even though they may not be sh- shared in terms of timelines, uh, certainly uh, larger developmental histories have parallels across cultures. Even though, again, even though there are differences, sort of the main trajectory is sort of a more organized um, series of social, economic, and political relations that allow for survival of larger populations and allow them to essentially in, in, gird themselves against potentially calamitous situations and so that the survival of ethnic groups is very important. 
and uh, basically establishes a certain continuity across cultures in all parts of the world. Archaeology, as it's presented to the public, is becoming increasingly more important on a global scale. I think that um, certainly those of us who have grown up in archaeology over the past, oh, let's say, half century, have witnessed a major change that um, is, is moving the uh, significance of archaeology much more into the public domain. We consider ourselves scientists, certainly, but sadly, as uh, resources for doing research and for enhancing our knowledge base and hopefully for uh, producing that symbiosis between knowledge and human understanding. The problem that we have here is that in a world of dwindling resources, um, we can only achieve our objective of expanding knowledge and, and, and increasing understanding by bringing this message out to the public because the pulpit public ultimately funds our work. It stands, I think, to gain from the types of work that we do and we have to certainly be more user-friendly for the public that will presumably absorb the knowledge that um, we're, we're obtaining through our science and through our research, and it has to get funded somehow, and it has to be brought, and the message of its significance has to be brought to the public, and that can only be done by um, communication, and communication is critical. It's one of the uh, aspects of higher education, if you will, that scientists are not necessarily very good at. Um, because we sort of get compartmentalized into the type of hard research that we do do and because we, by nature of the structures of university systems and uh, research organizations, we tend to talk amongst ourselves rather than transmit uh, the nature of our knowledge and the thrust of our knowledge to the public, which ultimately funds it. I think we are starting to emerge from that, and I'm going to talk about that just a little bit more in our final section. Stay tuned. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Can you dig it, 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 d
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the program. Uh, this is Joe Shulden Ryan with a uh, an episode of Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. And today we're talking about a uniquely 21st century reality, and that is the connection between national identities and archaeology. And we have been discussing the fact that archaeology has, in many cases, exposed the uh, monumental achievements of uh, populations in parts of the world that were disenfranchised. And these are populations that whose identities were in some ways smothered, if you will, by dominant Euro- European cultures, Western civilizations, and uh, archaeology has in, in so many ways uh, exposed the major achievements that indigenous populations have contributed to the world, and it has shown sort of a certain um, uniform. I won't say it's a uniformity, but uh, certainly a certain synchronous uh, situation in terms of developmental histories for many populations in diverse parts of the world and in diverse environments. And it, it's showing us that uh, people are adaptive, and people from everywhere are adaptive, and they adapt to their environments, their situations, and they do so in in many similar types of ways. They organize they, themselves in in ways that are beneficial to their socio-political survival, to their economic success, and uh, they become complex societies at different paces and in different ways all over the world, and they, their adjustments are in many ways very strikingly similar, irrespective of the terrain that they inhabit or irrespective of the environmental trade uh, constraints that are placed on them. We're now starting to see in many parts of the world that even monumental climatic changes resulted in a very nimble human response. People changed the location of their settlements because they were sensitized to climatic change in the past. And of course, hopefully that'll give us sort of a blueprint for tomorrow when climatic change very clearly is going to alter everything uh, in the upcoming decades, if not centuries. Um, centuries, if not decades. And and we can do these things. Um, We can also hopefully have the ability to uh, change our relationship to the natural world as well, but that's a, that's a whole other issue. What I am sort of trying to get to is how do we um, how do we appreciate archaeology going forward? Um, one of the interesting developments in archaeological um, studies over the past fifty years is that we have shifted from looking at monumental structures to looking at how populations actually functioned. In other words, we're not necessarily so concerned with the lacunae or the uh, the details associated with the construction of the pyramids or the construction of the villages in in parts of the Middle East, but we're we're 
really starting to key on socio-political and socio-economic organizations that resulted in these advanced systems that produce this architecture. The architecture is not the important thing. The king, the kingship lines in the case of the pharaohs or the monarchs of, of uh, Mesopotamia, that's not the issue. The issue is how do, how, how, what do we know about the people? What do we know about the supporting cast of characters, the people who built those monumental structures? And those are the types of things that archaeology has taken upon itself to look at. And I think it's either advertently or inadvertently, you can get arguments on both sides of the equation, I think uh, many theoretical archaeologists are hopefully posturing themselves to say, wait a minute, archaeology can really help us understand the history of the human condition as it emerged, as it evolved, as it grew, and in, fa- in many cases as it collapsed, but we can also use it as a blueprint for how to navigate uh, difficult challenges in the future. And commonality is one of the critical issues here. So we're, we're trying to stress um, sort of the, the building blocks of human organization and, and how, how these have adapted to various situations so that uh, let's take, for example, settlement geography, which is a very popular um, subdiscipline of archaeology in the 1970s and 80s, continues to be so, but not as much as it was then. But, but the whole point of settlement geography was to show uh, people, to teach people that um, prehistoric folks as well as uh, complex societies were very well attuned to the human landscape dynamic and that it's un- an understanding of that dynamic was critical in allowing people to survive and to change the locations of their settlements so they were not in the pathway of dangerous, say, for example, floods or dangerous climatic episodes or collapsing landscapes, and that mobilizing, for example, the waters in in areas which are desertic can be done by careful engineering. And so we're starting to see that there's an emphasis, there's an emphasis in in archaeological teaching um, at that point. over the past 30 or 40 years, maybe 50 in, in, in most cases, that is diverting the attention of looking at the glories of ancient Egypt to who the people were that were behind the scenes in developing those glorious uh, monuments and uh, those mo- mo- glorious constructs. Because those are the representation of the elites, and it was the, the, the people, the working people, who, who were responsible for that kind of construction. And I think it's really important for us to understand that, so that um, ultimately the point is that we have a lot more in common than we think. And um, it, 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 it's necessary to look at the emergence of prehistoric populations and, and their transformation into industrial societies and, and post-industrial societies. It's a logical construct. It's a logical development. It, uh, it is, in a many cases, in, in, in a broader sense, I think, it's an indication of the shrinkage of the world. And, and the shrinkage of the world basically means that we have more in common than uh, what we have that separates us. And I think, you know, in a world that has a tremendous amount of negativity and, and where prognosticators are very often very negative about what our future has in store for us, that we understand 
that our commonalities will get us through this. And our understanding of climatic change uh, is critical at this point uh, for cooperation. And once we understand what these problems are, we will look in our past, in the archives of our past work and our past achievements, and understand that by cooperating, we can um, do a tremendous amount to control changes in the natural environment by changing our behaviors and doing it on a cross-cultural basis. I don't think that's a very far stretch. Now, we still have pockets of resistance in very powerful places that hopefully we will able to overcome that kind of resistance. But I think that in the long run, there is a threat of understanding amongst people and amongst their uh, more sane, shall we call it, political leaders that these issues have to be confronted. And we can look with a certain amount of pride to our past and see that we, in, in, in situations of crisis, we have very often have come together and we have been able to marshal those forces of cooperation and to look uh, to build a better tomorrow that is based on our shared interests our shared developmental histories and archaeological investigations have shown that and brought it to the public eye. And I think that if we do want to continue to popularize archaeology, we have to do it in a cooperative light, and we have to emphasize our shared interests and our shared understanding of globalization and that we're all in this together. And on that very preachy note, uh, I, uh, I'm hopeful that this program uh, will do its own small part to uh, show you the ways in which archaeology can be a beneficial element to uh, societal improvements. And on that note, I wish you a fairly uh, a very good evening, and I look forward to having you listen again next week when we have another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Good evening. again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.